Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, I was explaining to Lois, we were swimming last week, and uh, I was explaining that the very center of Christianity, the meaning of the work of Christ, is actually under contention. People don't agree. And in fact, the work of Christ is maybe one of the most contested facts in various parts of Christianity, different churches, different groups. You know, did Christ live and die to solve a problem in God's mind between righteousness, his righteousness and his mercy? Did he come to pay a ransom to the devil? In ransom theory, did he come to pay a ransom to God? Did he come to influence us morally? This is Abelard, the moral influence theory. Did he come to demonstrate the love of God in the death of Christ? Or did he come, in fact, to demonstrate his wrath in the death of Christ? His righteous requirements. All of these are theories of atonement or theories of how you know, all we mean by the word atonement, how do you make things right? And they really do not agree on the primary problem. You know, is it the wrath of God, the violence of humans, the problem of hell? Is it about going to heaven? Now, without knowing the details, you might say, well, maybe it's a little of of, uh, each one of these. But the, the problem is that Actually, these are contradictory. Some of them are just contradictory ideas, and they don't all fit together. If you're uninitiated, you, know, you might think, well, these Christians, they all agree at least on what the religion is about. And no, they, there really isn't an agreement of that kind. I think that we need to bring this out. You know, This may seem kind of indelicate on a Sunday morning to say, we got a problem. But I think we need to say what the center is. What what is it all about? There's a lot of different understandings, and those understandings have profound consequences. And that's why we're seeing profound disagreement in our culture about what Christians and Christianity you know should do and should be. You know, and some going to heaven is more important than social justice, and some understandings. We can do what we want to the earth. We can just burn it up because we're going somewhere else. In others, there's profound notion of creation and creation care. In some forms of the faith, we can participate in war and violence, while in other forms, we can't. And so the point is we will find Christians on nearly every side of any issue. And I'm saying that the reason that is the case is because there is an agreement about what the center of this faith is about. What's the point of the whole thing? And I think, in fact, we're not used to hearing it put so bluntly that there's confusion. And so I'm afraid as a result, we're sometimes, especially on a Sunday morning, we can be a bit vague as to what it is we're, we're doing. And so as Lois and I were, we were actually swimming and she asked me that question. And so I, I said, well, let me swim one more lap and I'll think about it. And so I was actually underwater. I want to point that out. So my brain may not have been working full 
full speed. But I came back, we came back after the lap, and I said, well, here's my answer. The atonement is an intervention by God into the human predicament, inclusive of the psychological, social, historical trajectory of human beings. And then I pointed out that it is not about changing God or solving a problem in God, but people have the problem and the work of Christ addresses the human problem. I was pretty proud of my answer, actually. And so I was kind of glowing. But I could see maybe it wasn't as satisfying. Let me tell you what I've done here. I think that we can separate out. We're not about harmonizing a problem in the mind of God. We're not worried about satisfying the honor of God. We're not worried about appeasing the wrath of God. What I just said, we got rid of all that. We can eliminate, I think, the theories of divine satisfaction, Anselm, Calvin, you know, penal substitution. We can eliminate any theories that project violence onto God, theories focused on wrath, even eternal punishment, theories based on law or law-based arguments, because that's actually Anselm and Calvin. She didn't know this, but I had actually seen my, my answer had gotten rid of all that. I, I wasn't sure because, uh, I mean, we, we had been talking a while and I, I, I was waiting for her to praise my, my great answer. <laughs> and she said, you know, you could make picking your nose complicated. <laughs> and so we, we got kicked off. I gave up on that. So I thought, okay, let me try again. Let me see if I can do better. So here's my, my attempt to formulate. Maybe it's not nose-pickingly simple, but let me, let me try to make it simple. Now, even before I start the simple, let me make some general observations about what is not happening. I think the biblical explanation is actually quite simple. And I think it becomes complicated because of the extra-biblical theories that have been developed. In these extra-biblical theories, you know, I, I think that in the early church they were saying, well, it's the devil, and we pay it, you know, God's paying the devil. Ransom theory. I don't think that's it. I think there is a ransom being paid, but no one's receiving the payment. There is that imagery in the Bible there's a ransom from slavery. There's certainly that picture. It doesn't fit with satisfaction theory, the, the simple picture in the Bible. Anselm never said that it fit. He just said, let me find an illustration. And unfortunately, his illustration was so powerful that it kind of captured the church. In both ransom theory, penal substitution, the whole idea is upon retributive justice. And this is actually the, the theory that we have in our own legal system today. And it begins really in the medieval period. But when you talk about righteousness or justice in biblical terms, the idea was not retribution. God's righteousness is not concerned with retribution. God's righteousness is concerned with making things right. The world is not right and God is making things right. That's all that dikai sune, righteousness or justice, we can translate it either way, that's all that means. 
I don't think that Abelard's theory gets it either. Abelard, you know, this is the problem that Anselm and Abelard, they look back on the early church and Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. They had illustrated the atonement with the idea that, well, you know, maybe Jesus is like the bait on a hook. And the devil comes along and bites on the hook. And they said, you know, first of all, that assigns trickery to God. The other is that it assigns too much power to the devil. And so Anselm and Abelard, they said, let's just get rid of the devil part of this thing. And so Anselm gives us a legal theory. Abelard gives us moral influence theory. I think they're right that the notion of the devil, I think they had the right idea that there's too much power given there. But then they came up with explanations that rejected completely the notion of what we might call Christus Victor, and that is that Christ is victorious over sin and death, and I think that's the picture. There's a, there's a law of sin and death, and there is the law of life in the Spirit, and that's, that's the verse here. Let's look at Romans 8, 1 and 2. I think that this is just the summary of atonement theory. This is a summary of the New Testament. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There it is. Now we've got to say what that means, but I think that summarizes the idea. There are two sorts of conditions. There are two laws. There are two sorts of people attached to these conditions. And Paul describes these two types. He's actually describing this from 5 to 8. Romans 5 to 8 is the theological center of the New Testament. That's what this is supposed to do. It's supposed to summarize everything. The law of life frees the individual from the slavery of the law of sin and death. And Paul will continually refer to me and I. You know, in chapter 7, he describes an individual's isolated. He's focused on I, me, myself. And this occurs in the body of death. Paul will talk, refer to it as the body of death or the body of sin. And he describes a life of slavery to fear in 8.15. The suffering of this I. You know, it's almost implicit in his use of the word I. Grammatically and experientially, this is middle voice. What does that mean? It means that the I is at once active. The I is the cause of the suffering. And the I is passive in that it is the object of this suffering. Now that sounds twisted, but we all know that's true, that I am my own worst enemy. And Paul describes a painful desire working through this two sides of the eye. I could just say it between the mind and the body. That's a little too simplistic, but that gets at it. And it sums up the problem in 723. This is Paul's statement of the problem. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Or the, from the body of this death? And then chapter 8 speaks of the rescue. So 7, here's the problem. Here's, here's the human suffering. 
In chapter 8, we are rescued from this condemnation. What condemnation? Well, he just said, all of chapter 7 is the condemnation. So the problem of chapter 7 is solved in chapter 8. The isolated, alienated I is missing. There is no I in chapter 8 of Romans. It occurs like 20 times in chapter 7. But now there's the corporate identity, and it occurs in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. We need to look at the environment of these two. The first is an isolated individual in the law of sin and death, the body of death. And the other is in Christ. He'll use that phrase again and again, in Christ. And this being in Christ will bring about a series of connections with God. There will be a divine connection in all three persons of the Trinity. Chapter 8 is clearly Trinitarian, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It will also involve us, you know, he pictures the cosmos is groaning, so it's inclusive of the cosmos. And of course, it's inclusive of connections with other people in the body of Christ. Now you could go through, the, you know, the Holy Spirit is not in chapter 7. There's a lot of things that aren't in chapter 7. But the Holy Spirit is the theme of chapter 8. There is as many Holy Spirits in chapter 8 as there are eyes in chapter 7. And this can be equated, you know, what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit can be equated with life. You know, the Spirit, I think that's the answer to Paul's question. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank God, in Christ Jesus, I've been rescued. And then he, so he summed up the problem. And the rescue from the body of death, the law of sin and death, through the Spirit, by being in Christ. The fear and the slavery under the law of sin and death with its work through deceptive desire. Paul says, I did not know what it was to desire, to covet. You know, there are several words we could use here. Except the law said, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not desire. And he said that another law came alive. You know, this is, we need to keep track of the laws. So there's God's law, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this other law. And this law of sin and death is the thing that has a grip on us and is killing us. And we live lives of death. And he says, now this law is undone. You're no longer condemned. You're no longer suffering under that law. And the punishing effects of the law of sin and death can no longer condemn. And of course the condemnation is what he's describing throughout the end. Okay, I think I just told you the, the story of salvation in the Bible. The law of sin and death is undone through the death of Christ. And we now live in the law of the life of the Spirit. Everything I say after this is just more about how and why this is. And I think any theory of atonement, or in, even in the Bible or extra-biblical, if it does not support this understanding, then we've missed it. Because this is the center of the New Testament. And so I'm going to say some more stuff, but I already said domain stuff. And that is that the key difference between the living death of seven and the spirit of life, or another way of describing, you know, it's really a move from death to life. A living death to life. 
The death, well, it's a divided identity. I'm, I'm killing myself. The eye's alienated within itself. It's alienated. And life in the Spirit is a communion founded by the Father who has sent His Son, verse 8-3, who leads by His Spirit. So there, a way of describing salvation is as participation in God participation in the Trinity and a way of describing the other thing is not participating in God that is one's a negation of God so what do we have you know in chapter 7 we have the law the law of sin and death what is the law functioning in place of God the Father the Father is the primary agent in 8.20, who subjected the creation in hope. In 8.28, he makes all things work together for those who love him. In 8.29, he's foreknown and predestined those he called. And he's justified and glorified, 8.31. And of course, the key thing is, we no longer relate to God in the way that 7 talks about, through the law, actually through the law of sin and death, but now we cry out, Abba, Father. We have a direct relationship with God. So the law of sin and death is displaced. In place of the eye, you know, the eye disappears. And in place of that, we have communion in Christ Jesus, who was sent to free from the law of sin and death. That's 8, 2, and 3. By 8, 3, condemning sin in the flesh. And it's the Spirit who gives His Spirit of life. It's actually the Spirit of Christ or it's the Holy Spirit. So that those who suffer with Him, 8.17, will be glorified together with Him. And then 8.34 35, and He died and was raised and intercedes so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the most, you know, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. So, in place of the law is the Father, in place of the ego, the eye is the Son, Christ. In place of death, that's easy, is life. The Holy Spirit is life. And the Spirit is, you know, 8-2, the source of life. The Spirit empowers the walk of life. It changes our mindset, 8-9. The Spirit is God's righteousness, 8-10, whose resurrection power will give life, 8-11, to your mortal bodies. As by his life you have put to death the deeds of the body, 8.13. And through the Spirit, you're enabled by your adoption as children of God to cry out, Abba, Father. I think that's key. This relationship to the Father testifies to the work of the Spirit through the Son. And he helps us in our weakness and prayer, 8.26 to 27, interceding for the saints. You know, sometimes we just can't articulate it. We're suffering. And the Spirit intercedes with groanings that are too deep for our own articulation. And so what we have described is a communion in the Trinity in which this new humanity, a new kind of humanity walks, a new kind of mindset, 8-5-8, a new family or sonship, 815. You know, there's suffering in 8. Everybody knows there's suffering. But suffering's actually quite different. The suffering of 7 is suffering in the eye. Suffering of 8 is famine, 
persecution, terrible suffering. Paul says, even if we should die, we know that the love of God, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We might picture these two things as two different kinds of subjects or two different kinds of human beings. I'm just following Paul here. One is the subject of desire, and the other is the subject of hope. Hope is thematic. There is no hope in chapter 7, but chapter 8 is filled with hope. The subject of desire, he says, is deceived, as it makes the law a means of achieving the self. And this I, Paul will use the language of seeing throughout chapter 7. He used the word, the Greek word, blepo. And then he says in 8, but hope is something that you cannot see. And so there is this alien force, another law inducing evil works. But hope counters this kind of spectral vision relationship. For in this hope, 824, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. If the object of hope, Paul says, is seen, then it's not hope. Hope, by definition, falls outside our ability to see it, right? And so it's not the body, the bodily image. It's not the image in the mirror. It's not the image of other people. It's the image of Christ. It's not I, but it's the image of Christ. And we can't see that image. That doesn't mean we can't apprehend the image of Christ. We apprehend that image through the word. We see through our ears is an odd way to put it. The eye is focused on fulfilling, you know, really finding the self in and through a kind of self-relationship, the bodily image. Hope is focused on being conformed, 829, to what? To the image of Christ. See, Paul still is using the word image, but that word image takes on a very different meaning. You can't see this image like I can see your images, but we're going to see the image of Christ through hope. And it's not going to misconstrue then the mortal body. That's the hope of resurrection. It's not that we deny our mortal bodies, but we recognize that Christ is raised and we'll be raised with him. And he describes this process. It's a dynamic process, walking as he walked, putting on the mind of the spirit. It's inclusive of human will. There is an incapacity of the will in chapter 7. I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. I can't do it. But in chapter 8, you can put on the mind of the Spirit. You can actually put on the righteousness, the patience, the hope. And you do this then in 8.11 through acceptance. Death is not, your, is not something to be feared. He talks about you're being enslaved to death, to the fear of death. Hebrews talks about the enslavement. That's the work of the devil, is the fear of death. Okay, so put simply, one subject is replaced with another subject. The subject of life displaces the subject of death. That's Christianity. That's what we're about. Now let me just go through and answer some questions. I, I get to ask the questions. <laughs> Where's the devil in all of this? And, and of course in Paul, there's no devil in chapter 7 and 8. But I think he's present in Paul's explanation because he's actually doing a, a kind of commentary on Genesis 
a deception in regard to the law. That's the serpent's work in Genesis. And then Paul is making reference then to this deception, but he calls it sin. In other words, the serpent is sin. There's this misorientation to God through a deception in regard to the law. And that's the power that Paul will assign elsewhere to the prince of the power of the air. He'll talk about the principalities and powers. He'll talk about these authorities in high places. But I think he always means what we just said. That is, all of these things work according to the same pattern. And God's authority is challenged then by these powers. I don't know that it's simply a personal force. I'm not excluding that. But it's certainly not simply that. And this gets at the the problem in the early church. We may have talked about the early church fathers incorrectly. This is Gustav Allen who talks about that nobody ever held to the notion of a payment to the devil. That was a misunderstanding, this ransom theory. He says, no, nobody believed that. That was just an illustration. Maybe that's it. If that's the case, I think we can call what I've just described. This is the belief of the early church. This is the the belief of the New Testament. We can just call it Christus Victor, the victory of Christ. Question two, what, what about the wrath of God? Where is the wrath of God? The punishing effects of the law of sin and death are an admixture in Paul's explanation of divine wrath and human wickedness. The judgment passed on sin brought death, right? In Genesis, but also in Romans 1. But Paul's not describing this in terms of God's wrath. He's describing death as inherent to sin. He says in 5, 16 to 17, death reigned from the time of Adam. And then he talks about undoing this death. This is six. You know, this is baptism. You died to, to, to sin and death and you conquered death. There is the understanding that within sin, there is the seed of condemnation inherent to the sin. And that's what Paul has focused on. Where is substitution? Question three. Is there substitution? Well, certainly there's not substitution like Calvin or Anselm put it. That, oh, Christ took our penalty? Penalty is the wrong word. It's condemnation. But what condemnation? It's the condemnation of sin and death, right? That he's taken. But what has he done with it? He's intervened in it. He's taken the condemnation that's meted out by sin and death. Paul says, God has condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. This is 8.3. This is the key verse. So that it no longer deals out death by deception. He's disempowered sin through his life and death and resurrection. And as a result, 8.1, there is no condemnation. And so Jesus' death substituted, maybe, but maybe a better word is intervened in the life of other people. In the, you know, he assumes the sin and death, and, but it, it is a kind of understanding that he's also disempowered it. That the act of participation in Christ, you know, through dying and rising with him, we no longer suffer sin's penalty of the law of sin and death. 
Those who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death. And so he died so that believers may die with him and live with him. So it's a participation. And how this substitution or participation works, you know, in chapter 7. And I, I, we need to say something about the body. You know, is, our, is it that we have a body problem? No, we are bodies. So we need another word. And Paul has two words that he uses. When he's talking about sin or the sin, sin problem, he uses the word sarks, which we can translate flesh. But when he's just talking about people or their bodies, he uses the word soma. And so he talks about sin in my members, 723, in the flesh. It's not soma that's your problem. It's the sarks. It's the sin principle. It's sin that dwells in my flesh. So it's not simply my body, but the flesh is the sin principle as it takes hold in people. And the place from which sin works is flesh. The, you know, works its death. And the sentence of death is passed on sin. In the one who is in the true likeness, this is 8.3, of sinful flesh. It's not that sarks or the body is inherently sinful. It's that this sin principle dwells in the flesh. So that those who are found in his likeness, 6.5, through baptism, will experience this death to sin rather than death by sin. That's our choice. Death to sin or death by sin. This sin which works through deception and ignorance brings about disobedience unto death. This is 5.18 to 20. You know, he talks about the one who was obedient even unto death makes obedience possible. And so my point here is, yes, there is an intervention. We can even talk about it as a substitution. But substitution, wrongly understood, is actually just the opposite. Because we do what Christ did. We follow Christ. And so it's not that, oh, Christ died, so I don't have to. No, Christ died, take up your cross and follow him. Right? Last thing. What about the law? Paul links the capacity, you know, I said behind the cry, Abba, Father. There, it, it, it's a sign of an ontological shift behind the law. There was an incapacity in regard to the law or in the will in chapter 7 and now there is a capacity in 8, 4 to 11 to meet the righteous requirements of the law. As Christians, we meet the righteous, not that it's imputed to us theoretically, not that on the law books, no, we actually can live this thing out. We can begin to walk as Christ walked. We can begin to be ethical in the way that Christ was ethical. And so the incapacity is replaced with a new capacity to walk as he walked, to think different thoughts. Okay, so I'm not sure what you call what I just said other than the New Testament. It's the Bible. It's very simple. You go from death to life. It doesn't fit, and I just want to say that, it does not fit with many theories of the atonement that are floating around out there that are being preached week after week in many of the churches we're surrounded by. 
Maybe it fits the early, you know, Irenaeus or Justin Martyr. Maybe it fits Christus Victor or even Irenaeus' notion of recapitulation. You know, we've talked about that Christ undoes the lie. He redoes our life. But dying with Christ can be understood as the death or the victory over investing life in this alienating lie of sin and the beginning of a new kind of communion with Christ and his body, Christ's body, by means of the spirit of life. And so the law of sin and death is replaced by the law of life and the spirit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.